I think that'll work. We're good. We're golden. Let's go. Let's do it. I made the mistake of, are you rolling? No, 100%. I thought so. Yeah. I made the mistake of trying to listen to the first episode and in oh. preparation for this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago. 10 yeah. years ago. We started with John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. How did we do? Uh, I didn't listen to the whole thing. Uh, for starters, I didn't uh, listen to any of it, so I'm well, assuming we did. Yeah, terribly. I'm a madman for trying to listen to it. I'm pitching my voice down the whole time, yeah. which is just driving me insane. It <laughs> just makes it really hard listening. Trying yeah. to be talk radio, dog. Got like a podcast voice yeah. on. Yeah, I hate it. It's yeah. bad. Um, what else? Um, I made just some kind of very obvious observations that weren't particularly interesting. Um, the audio is terrible, obviously. Well, yeah, because we're recording like directly into my laptop off of the like external mi- or the internal yeah. microphone on the of computer the, of the yeah, computer. Yeah. Yeah. Gathered around your MacBook talking yeah. into it. Yeah. In a room not acoustically designed for studio recording. Yes. yes. Like it's a repurposed classroom, as I recall. Yeah, some kind I of think central m- office space. Yeah, it was some sort of common area for faculty. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is definitely a better movie than that movie, too, I think. I mean, I like Assault on Precinct 13, but... Escape from New York goes hard. It's a better movie, yeah. Yeah. I think this movie rules. <laughs> I don't know about... Well, okay. Hi. Uh, <laughs> welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We talk about the films. You'll never discuss a film today's course 10 years in the running. Uh, talking about this, we are the best 10-year-old Good Trash Honorcast there is. That's right. And uh, <laughs> we are... 100%. Now- uh, going to be talking about Escape from New York, uh, directed by one John Carpenter, because we inaugurated this show with John Carpenter, and uh, we got to check in on Johnny from time to time. You know, it's been got, a while, hasn't it, it? It has been a hot minute. What was the last one we did? I was well, just looking to probably see probably the Darkness trilogy. Yeah, yeah, I think Prince of Darkness Prince was the Darkness, last one. maybe. Yeah, but to go through. I don't. I'm not sure. You know, it's really weird. What's that? Speaking of being a ten year old show, what's that? You know, I know we talked about this off air already, but I got to acknowledge it. I'm the same age you were. You t- you even mentioned in the first episode that you're 31 years old. I I did, did I? Yeah, you did. It came up in conversation. Yeah. Yes, and so yeah, you are now what I was. You got a lot more miles. That's yeah. what I'll say. Yeah, it's not the years, it's the mileage. The mileage is really getting to me. <laughs> That's probably fair. Hey, by the way, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And we're here to talk about this movie. And in order to do that, in case this is the first time you've tuned in here at our 10-year anniversary, uh, welcome. And we want to let you know that this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. We will talk about whether we like it or not, but that's not what we're here to do. We're here to break down what the movie means, and that oftentimes means spoilers are required. Yeah, definitely required, I would say. And we're going to try to avoid those the first you know, third or so of the show. And the way it looks is this. We have synopsis, which is going to be like, something you might read off imdb but better because arthur writes it and then we're going to move on to quick thumbs up thumbs down reviews which will be like what you might read on a website but better because we do it and then finally <laughs> we move time to think no i like it i like uh, it the, the, the 10 year old pride in me right yeah go no very, no, go very for spunky 10 year old that yeah, I, I love am. it uh then we move on to a little game in which we say you know what we can indeed make a class out of this you could make a film studies course and we try to do that uh which might involve the gentlest spoilers of either this film or other films in its orbit and then finally there's music that says we've gotten down to business that business being analysis and that's when all spoiler bets are off and so then you will have been warned and you'll know whether or not you need to go ahead and check the movie out first before proceeding to the end of the podcast therefore that is the all of that preamble information arthur gordon would you please delight us with your synopsis In the at-one-time near future of 1997, (laughs) crime has gotten so bad that Manhattan Island has been converted into a prison world run by street gangs. When Air Force One is hijacked, 
The president is taken hostage. They should have had Harrison Ford. And there's only one man who has a chance of going in and saving him. Snake Plissken. Um, Harrison Ford is definitely more of a presence than Donald Pleasance. Uh, for sure. <laughs> very different presidents. Very different presidents. Very different uh, times in office. Yeah. Yes. Uh, very. Yeah. I Energy like is significantly different. Yeah. And then uh, I don't even Bill Pullman. I don't even know where he's at in that that, that oh, conversation. Way different. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Pleasance is definitely giving up a very particular kind of president. I would say a more honest president than the Pullman president or the Harrison Ford the, president. The, yes. Ah, president. Yeah. As I like the, to call I him. I admire and uh, appreciate their sacrifice, president. That would be the kind. <laughs> that he is yes we'll talk more about that anon however we're now going to move into thumbs up thumbs down reviews of the film uh i think we've all seen this before no uh, not as an adult not i as had an adult. not seen it i think i was watching it i go yeah i've seen this but it was, it was entirely like i didn't remember it yeah mm-hmm. so um i guess that makes me the least virginal uh of the lot of us so i'll go to arthur first because you are the most virginal yes i believe so okay I, uh, there, there are a lot of cool things about Escape from New York. Chief among them being that there's a guy called Snake Plissken. <laughs> Snake, Snake Plissken? Hang on. No, no. I have Snake a, I had a eye list. patch gets the award. Uh, not his tattoo? Not his, no, not his, his tattoo. His tattoo is terrible. And his Under Armour uh, outfit Wrong. and his camo pants. Yep. Hey, I like the zippers at the shoulders, though. Uh-huh. That's really unnecessary. Let's see. Uh, Snake Plissken, cool. Uh, world building, uh, cool. This movie does that thing uh, that I really like. It's what John Wick does, and mm-hmm. it just puts you in this world and it doesn't explain anything. <laughs> and it yeah. has its, its its rules. It has its uh, morality codes and ethics. Uh, all the characters live by things. Factions, yeah, groups. Uh, I don't know why the cars have chandeliers on them, uh, but I'm glad that they do. He's the Duke of New York. He's a number one. It's because Isaac Hayes is black. Yeah. But we'll talk more about that later. Wrong. No, Get out I, of here. I, I, no. I already hate where his reading's going. I was gonna, this, is gonna, this is gonna be a terrible episode. I can already um, tell. Hawk, great antagonist. Hawk. Hawk is a great antagonist. Oh, yeah. Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. Well, Give me, very good. Yeah. The earring. Cool yeah. earring. <laughs> I know. Lee Van Cleef with an earring was surprising. He's a, he's a very good foil to Snake Plissken. I, I dig that a lot. Hell yeah. Uh Gabby, Brain, Maggie, Duke. Cool. All cool. Yep. All cool people. Uh the other one, uh, I, I forgot his name, the wild hair crazy one. Oh, uh, uh, Romero. Romero. Uh, yeah. He's cool. Uh, he's great. As in yeah. George A. Probably. Yeah. I looks, wrote down. I had he the looks like There's a Cronenberg reference in there, too. Yeah. Monster from uh, Death Note uh, with that hair, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, he 100% does. That's very a cool. great, well spotted Arthur. Um, and so, yeah, and, and this very much feels like foreshadowing video games in a way. I don't know that many other movies did at the time. Uh, it, it feels part platformer. It feels very first person shooter. Go into a building, clear the level, go to the next stage in a way that I don't think action movies had reached yet that we are kind of definitely more familiar with now. But it really feels like a precursor to the way. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised if people developing, say, a Doom or a Duke Nukem hadn't sure. watched some escape from New York and be like, hey, this is kind of a cool aesthetic and design and way to do stuff. Snake Plissken's definitely been cribbed by, I mean, you know, oh, he's yeah. a, he's a huge inspiration for Solid Snake. I yeah. mean, yeah, uh, this is a, one of, maybe one of the most influential on video games movies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's uh, a really cool. Um, and, and it's kind of fun to see that. I think, uh, I, I really like a lot of it. I think the aesthetic, cool, a lot of cool miniature uh, set stuff early on. Uh, having to land a plane on top of the world. Trade centers is a cool set piece. Um, you know, just running through this city uh, of New York, uh, filmed in St. Louis, uh, <laughs> which is a fun little bit. Yeah. Um, 
so that's cool. Uh, I do think narratively, though, uh, it just uh, the idea of stakes uh, fall apart pretty quickly. Uh, we are giving a pretty big uh, way to ramp stakes up uh, in the onset when uh, we not only have a timeline on this mission, we've mm-hmm. got 22 hours to get the president out, then we suicide squad it, uh, and you've got 22 hours, and if you don't get back, your heads are going to explode. Um, so we've got those two things built in there to ramp up the tension as the movie progresses and that really falls apart. Mm. It, that it, it doesn't feel like that's ever a concern that the timeline of the events taking place, uh, is really as flexible and fluid as they need it to be. Mm. And even in those final, like 90 seconds when, uh, Pliskin's, you know, at the line, you know, there's never really a, a, a doubt or question that he's going to get out. Uh, there's some also things in that kind of same sequence as they are going to uh, the wall uh, where a lot of stuff happens in a very short time and it feels kind of rushed. Uh, and I, I can't really say more without spoiling it. I mean, it is a 40 year old movie, but I don't know if I should spoil Escape from New York for anybody. Uh, so maybe we can come back to that because I do think narratively the idea of stakes and tension really fall apart there. Uh, but as an action movie, it's a lot of fun. Uh, as this kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi adventure. I think it's really solid. Kurt Russell uh, seems to be having a blast. Uh, This is a character I know he'd wanted to play, uh, this type of futuristic action hero. Uh, And he does a great job. He said that this is his favorite character still. Yeah, Yeah. and and it really is uh, him delivering every line the exact same way. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But it's a hoot. And there's something, I don't know, uh, fun about that. And... And admirable, I guess. I don't know. It's it's fun. And I think if you are into this, uh, you'll enjoy it. Uh, someone, I, I read a review, I think it was maybe Scott Tobias or Keith Phipps, one of them. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned this is kind of second-tier Carpenter. And I think that's where I'm at with it. Uh, I think there's a lot of other Carpenter I like more than this. Uh, but this isn't bad anyway. You know, it's, it's one of those things, almost, you know, a, a guy like uh, Spielberg, Hitchcock, even when they're not at, at the top of their game, they're still doing stuff better than a lot of other directors. And then this kind of where's that? And I understand though, why it would have that kind of cult appeal. I, you know, if I'd watched this as a kid growing up on cable, I probably would have really been into it a lot more now. Um, but as, as it stands, I, I think it's really solid. I think it's a lot of fun. I'm glad I finally caught up with it. And it's one of the kind of my carpenter blind spots, the big ones. And mm-hmm. so I'm happy to watch it. I'd watch it again. I love Kurt Russell. Uh, and I've mentioned the characters, but Ernest Borgnine, Adrian Barbeau, uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. are also good. Isaac, uh, Isaac Hayes, Hayes yeah. as the Duke. Donald Pleasance is doing a very specific type of thing, but I think it's very all intentional and mm-hmm. kind of watching some interviews and behind the scenes stuff. Uh, very on purpose what he is doing as this schmuck of a president. Um, so, yeah, I, I think all that's great. It, it is it's a stat cast. It really is. I mean, it is a lot of people who've worked with him. Uh, before, but it's also a lot of. I mean, Ernest Borgnine, I think, is inspired. He's so casting. Good. I think that's great uh, here, especially from like kind of genre, kind of neo western thing. I think that's a great pull uh, with Borgnine. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's really solid. I might actually talk my, my myself up on it more. Um, that's kind of I did, what go, to I did me. go to the yeah. full five stars when I rated it on Letterbox. I landed at three and a half. Mm. Uh, I could have seen going to four. I don't know if it would take it into the five, but I, I think it's really fun and. I don't know what else I would want from a movie with a character named Snake Plissken other than fun. Right. 
Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, what do you think, Dalton? Do I mean, like- I got I to echo, yeah, most of everything Arthur said. I, I did go the full five. I couldn't talk myself out of it. I kept trying to, and I was like, this, it's just like every moment of this movie, something iconic happens. And I could see, it's definitely like a, a carpenter that speaks less to me a little bit, mm-hmm. but I, I definitely see the cult appeal. I see, like, if you're growing up with this movie, uh, I could definitely see falling in love with it. I, again, I, I even still have vague memories of seeing bits and pieces of it as a kid, and, you know, those bits and pieces definitely stuck with me there were moments re-watching this that i was like oh yeah yeah, yeah i remember this part so like things i hadn't seen in decades are still kind of sticking out to me uh yeah I, i'm the cast alone i just all of these character actors showing up really uh supporting kurt russell's transformation into action icon uh out, out of his his disney uh days it, it works it just it, everything works I, there, there's not a moment for me that does that feels unearned or feels uh outside of the scope of what this movie should be doing um, I'm with you. I love the the lore that it automatically sets up. A third world war has happened, and we're not going to talk about it at all. It's not important. <laughs> the world went on. Uh, uh, just let Jamie Lee Curtis get you up to speed on what happened and uh, buckle in. Do love her showing up for that opening narration. That's really fun. Um, yeah, I'm just on board with this. I, I, I think it is sort of the transition f- for Carpenter out of um, his... You know, it, it definitely it, it is the transition movie from the fog and Halloween to the thing. I mean, it definitely occupies mm-hmm. that middle space in a really interesting way in his career. And it's just it's, I don't know. It's just a film that gets me excited as I'm watching it. I, I, I'm fully invested. Uh, I'm just totally on board with everything that's happening, because every time I try to check out Ernest Bornine shows up with a friggin Molotov cocktail. Like what's not to like? Uh, and again, it's a guy called Snake Plissken. Cool. Duke mm-hmm. of New York. He's a number one. Cool. I'm into it. Let's go. Uh, Donald Pleasance is the the best movie president ever by being the worst movie president ever. Great. No notes. Definitely a post-Watergate movie. Definitely a post-Vietnam movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I can't wait for us to talk about all that kind of subtext going on in this movie. Uh, any other final thoughts from me? Uh, long live the National Liberation Front of America, I guess. <laughs> Justin, what are your thoughts? You, you're you're a little colder on it than Arthur and I, I I'm think. a little cooler, but I, I definitely have to agree, first of all, that it is fun. Yeah, it is so much fun. Um, I did hear uh, and see uh, an interview recently with John Carpenter talking about what he didn't like about 80s action stars. And he talked about their haircuts. And I'd have to say Kurt Russell has the haircut. But um, so I went like, hmm. Love it. Because does he look like Mel Gibson? I mean, the, the same lethal weapon Mel Gibson haircut. I think he gets to it first, and I think it's less of a mullet. I but, think it's more of a, like a, a middle part or well, a side part. I, I don't know, but anyway, I, I just thought I, I thought mm, I think your standards are a little strangely misremembered there. Uh, I think it's a little John Rambo. Yeah, a little John Rambo, but it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Or Bruce Willis. Correct. Uh, well, <laughs> no. Bruce, well, we're not going to have Bruce for a few years yet. Uh, that's, that's the kind of the thing that's interesting about this movie is sort of the space it occupies being so early in, right. in kind of the 80s action canon. But uh, so, yes, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's incredibly silly. I love I love late 70s, early 80s New York punks. Uh, whatever New York punks were, they weren't that, but they were that in all the movies. And uh, do that at 11, yes, indeed, uh, and drench it in a little meth and LSD, and that's kind of what you get in this movie, and I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, so it's it's Looney Tunes, Bananas, and that all works. Uh, you guys talked about world building and how that was, you know, uh, they just drop you in and don't explain it, and that's a good thing, and it's a good choice. I totally agree. I do think there's some editing errors. 
somewhere in the not error so much but there's there are moments where it fades to black to transition between scenes and it feels like made for tv commercial kind of stuff and it's hmm. narratively okay. sort of strange to me at times i'm like you 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 they've they've lost something in rhythm i there. felt like there were a couple of those moments where i was like wait what is this daytime Right. But then I was like, well, Thailand, I guess it is almost 24 hours, so I guess it would be dark again, but it does seem like they were just in the daylight. Day to night, yeah. There's, so, there's like, a... some of that kind of weird stuff happens, but yeah. whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't I, bother me. I hadn't thought about it until you pointed out, Arthur, but they really are generous on, like, that 22 hours lasts exactly as it long takes, as they need it to. It takes them an hour to fly in. Yeah. And then he gives himself less than an hour to fly out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Yeah, they sort of check in on that clock as as the movie demands yeah. it's necessary. Yeah. And I and I do feel like as Arthur was saying, the the use of a countdown to create stakes is, you know, typical sort of uh screenwriting thing. Mm-hmm. It, it it doesn't quite exactly work. I I don't quite feel the stakes there. That and I think Snake Snake Plinskin is invincible. Like there's never any part of me that's like, no, he's just he's not gonna make it. This this movie he's too cool. Th- yeah. This movie's gonna turn on me, and they're gonna blow his head up. I mean, I was like, yeah. no, they're not. He's too cool. You it, simply know he's gonna be fine, right? And th- this yeah. is not just like from like you know forty one years later knowledge, where I know for a fact that there's an Escape from L A. sequel. It's just you watch this movie, and go, this guy's not gonna die. I think that's a totally fair critique. So uh, yeah. Yeah, there there is a little bit of that going on with it. The, the movie I, character who's too cool potentially. Correct. Yeah. Kind of like John Wick. I'm there. There's now a fourth John Wick movie coming out. Yeah, I've never been worried. Him. Yeah, I've never. Been been worried it, now they might to the, end the, the series and that would be cool but you don't do that right one it's just right. not how it's done john carpenter's score we haven't spoken about it is great uh and <sighs> oh, as boy. always i just love that i love the uh computer generated little uh, bits of uh video gamey not, the opening like, like guess yeah, what not look, computer generated oh really they, they drew, had they it was cheaper to, it was cheaper to do it for real to do like huh. matt uh, like green neon striped matte paintings or whatever. Really, just yeah. hand drew it. But they, I, yeah, cool. I they wanted the to do they, stuff. They wanted and... to do it in a computer, but it was just going to be too expensive. Huh. In eighty one. Wow, that, isn't that interesting? That yeah. is wild. Well, it looks great. And it looks so incredible. It was right. a, it was an absolute success there. So uh, good on you there, Johnny Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and others. Uh, so that all works for me there. But uh, that all being said. I, I, I don't really feel, again, any sort of anxiety that you need to feel in an action movie. Mm-hmm. And, and and so for that purpose, it's a little uneven mm-hmm. uh, for that. It does feel at times a little long in the tooth. I, I, I just... Really? Okay. I, I just... The, the machinations of brain going back and forth and finding the tape and not finding the tape. And, okay. and it, it's just, there's, there's just a lot that happens. That's and, fair. and it seems to me, if you're going to go with this sort of video game kind of script, we're just going to, we know exactly where we're going to go and we're going to go there next. And then we're going to go there next. And it's okay to sort of upset the apple cart and do some things differently. But even when they do that, there's a moment where they decide to clear the entire uh, WWE area. And uh, I won't say more about this for spoiler purposes, but they clear the whole area. They've got snake play as a uh, prisoner and they just leave him i'm like what why okay yes you have another problem to deal with and all you you know new york punks need to go deal with that problem but maybe not leave the one guy that's there to be the monkey in the wrench and and he just walks away and he becomes a monkey in the wrench it just it makes no sense I, he's a monkey in the wrench. Yeah, well, uh, uh, <laughs> you, you never heard somebody say that though. It's like you throw a monkey wrench in a thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm the monkey in the wrench. It's, I'm, it's, it's, it's I like, never heard it phrased that way, and I'm I'm loving it. I'm pretty sure Bruce Willis says it in one of the Die Hard movies. Great. In fact, um, yeah, I'm on board with monkey in the wrench. Yeah, it's very good. 
and it means so, nothing, but it means everything. It, yeah, yeah, it's a dumb phrase. But I love it though. I, you know, he wins his gladi uh, his gladiatorial test, and he's just left to his own devices. It, it's like no, you're still fo- no, but no, no, no it, bad prisoner upkeep. Well, it, you would you would think Isaac Hayes would say somebody put him in a hole, and let's go do this. Right, but no, no one thinks to do. They just go. Oh, we have to go now, and they just go and like, oh, you know, New York hoods—they're dumb. Therefore, Snake Plissken's fine. Snake yeah. Plissken's, go- yeah. They, we, no one even thought to secure the prisoner. And uh, what is this new Dustin? I don't know. This new plot hole Dustin that yeah, we discovered. Did lately. he find CinemaSins? I don't know. Did what he discover it? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, this is these are things that don't occur to me while I'm watching. Yeah, Escape I didn't from care New at all. Uh, yeah. I thought about it. I was like, oh, they just left him. Oh well. <laughs> well, I, that's I mean, why I was like, why would you leave him? The plot needs it though. So what do you do? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm on board with this movie. So when the through, plot does something stupid, I don't really notice. Throughout yeah. the entire movie, part of the cachet of Snake Plissken is everybody knows who Sh- Snake Plissken is, which is incredible. Which yeah. is incredible. you know I love that stuff. But if everybody knows who this guy is, nobody forgets who he is. That's fair. I mean, that's nobody. Yeah forgets that he's in the room i got gotcha. you yeah and it's so, so fun it's a cake and eat it too thing. i love it it's just, yeah uh, it's like uh swayze and roadhouse yeah. everybody knows who he is and yeah. has an opinion about him right and, and that's cool and i, I like thought it. you were dead yeah. so good yeah which is... apparently comes from a john wayne movie that, where everybody ah. thinks he's dead i can't remember the time i almost sat us down to watch the the the, the blu-ray i have from shop factory it has the uh deleted bank robbery i've heard oh, about yeah? it yeah that, that was thought they, lost. they got him arrested yeah it was thought lost forever for a little bit i guess but yeah, it mostly works. There are weird things here and there. There's uh, a, a lot more style than there is substance. I think there is some substance, and we'll talk a little bit about it. But I, I think it is a less thoughtful Carpenter. And so it, you mentioned it being mid-tier, and I think mid-tier is a good place to put it. And I think it's good for mid-tier Carpenter. It's mid-tier on the right side of the shelf, so it's easily accessible, not like on the dusty left end of the shelf. <laughs> you know, so fine. But... Yeah, I don't. I'm, it doesn't blow my hair back, but I'm not mad at all that I watched Showing it. Showing his right-handed bias here. Well, you know, you, correct. <laughs> so there you go, dear listener. Uh, Those were our. Th- go ahead. Well, two things. Uh, one, so uh, I was watching a behind-the-scenes featurette, uh, and they were talking to Harry Dean Stanton, mm. and Harry said John called him and he wanted him to do the show, and Harry said I'll do it, but I want to change the lines, and John said. Okay, just don't change my plot. And you can do what you want. I saw this one too. Uh, yeah, which I love is really that. fun. Uh, and then I found out that the girl in Chock Full of Nuts is uh, Kurt Russell's first wife. Oh, no huh. kidding! There you go. They were married for four years. No kidding! Yeah, I didn't learn that in my research. This is That's before nice. you met Goldie, and it all yeah. went different. Uh, season Hubley. Season Hubley. Well, there you go. The girl in Chock Full of Nuts. Who gets eaten by tunnel people? I guess. Yeah. yeah there's mole, just there's just mole, mole man is down there yep. just yanking them. <laughs> wait, wait for the fantastic war to show just, up. Yes, yanking them. Yeah, just grabbing people by the ghoulies. <laughs> don't, don't walk into chock full of nuts. Yeah, they'll snag you from under the floorboards. The mole man's got a chock full of nuts is what's happening. What a wild moment in the movie, too. Uh, like, what is going on? I love it. I, exactly. That's why I'm saying every moment in this movie why is are just those like... Why people under it? I don't know. I don't care. Not important. It's fun. The movie's iconic. The movie's bananas. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to the next part of the show, which is an exercise right. we like to call Expanding the Syllabus. Arthur, can you explain what that's all about? Expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we, the hosts, assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent text from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories. Very good. Very good. Arthur, have you brought in, yes, brought in, a syllabus with you? I like Broughtonwursts. Um, yeah, I, I think we would put this in a, uh, 
I thought about genre class, but I think you could do just a whole class on Westerns. Uh, you know, you start with the oldies and then you move into revisionists and then you get into neo-Westerns. And, and so this would be in a neo-Western section. Is Kurt Russell doing a Clint Eastwood? He's admitted yeah, he's doing he's, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he's yeah, definitely he's, reading he's been, it like Clint. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's been very straightforward about doing President Clint. President of what? Yeah. So, President of what? So good. Um, so yeah, we would do neo-Westerns. So these are kind of movies set in uh, at either at the time, modern time or future times. Uh, that have the structure, narrative components, and genre elements of the classical Western or revisionist Western. Um, and so I think to start, uh, we would go with uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. Uh, this is a Spencer Tracy movie uh, about a sort of uh, army veteran who has come to Black Rock, which is a, a gas station in a hotel, uh, to see somebody. Uh, and everybody is incredibly hostile to him, and he's mm. trying to figure out why. It's like a proto Bad Times of the Ale Royale. This it's, sounds cool. I've it's never a heard good movie. This. It's like a tight eighty minutes. Uh, I saw it on Criterion. I watched it. Uh, it's really good. Spencer Tracy uh, is great, uh, but it also features Ernest Borgnine as a heavy, uh, and he does some stuff with a car, which is also appropriate yeah. um, since he is cabby. Uh, so I think that's where we would start. Uh, it's kind of got some noir elements to it, but it's also very much a western because he has gone to. Uh, it, it is. After World War II, mm-hmm. so it's kind of set in the fifties, uh, but he has gone to Bad Rock, which is, or Black Rock, which is very much uh, a remaining figment of of the old West, a vestige so, of another time. Yep. So the old West still kind of rules apply, laws apply, mentalities apply. One guy fresh out of the military is sort of a classic Western trope too. Right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. Uh, so I think that's uh, a good time and a good place to start. Uh, then we'd go to uh, a John Carpenter. We've already mentioned it, and that is Assault on pre 13, this remake of uh, Rio Bravo, right? Yeah, and uh, El Dorado. Yeah. El Dorado. Either uh, one, which and, is a remake uh, of itself, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird Hawks, circular yeah. thing. Um, we would do that uh, and look at the, uh, the, the, the townspeople standing up against the outsiders who are coming in to uh, take what they own, the, the, usually the powerful outlaw family or whatever it might be, the power bandit of the city, uh, and the, the lawmen's and, and the uh, anti-heroes that were helping them out, uh, that classic Western trope. Uh, similarly, uh, we would look at Copland uh, as nice. well, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, starring Stallone. Yeah. Uh, and directed by... Mangold. James, James Mangold. Mangold. Yeah. And uh, a similar premise there, we've got the, the, the sheriff who... Uh, is is kind of dirty, but he's just kind of playing by the the rules of the town, mm-hmm. and then he realizes how dirty those rules are, and that a good man can't really go along with that. Not the James Mangold neo western I expected you to pull. There's another one I might reference, oh, but okay. uh, uh, yeah, I, I think Copland's a good place. It is. Uh, Priscilla... It's a more of a neo western I think than Three Ten to Yuma because Three Ten, I mean, really does kind of follow that classic format. I think it's yeah. much more classical western. You do you know uh, Priscilla Page? Yeah, the, yeah. I, she's made the the argument that all Mangold movies are westerns, and I think Copland's a real strong argument for that. But I think my uh, my neo Three Ten to Yuma would actually be Midnight Run. Nice uh, 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 about a, a bounty hunter uh, escorting a prisoner across the. Yeah. the country and yeah. i think that would be the fun pairing there and the way they uh come together uh we would also look at clint eastwood we would actually look at grand torino uh which mm. feels very much like a john wayne movie in the night or in the 2000s uh right. feels like something he would do uh there uh, we would look at no country for old men i think as well obviously logan so a little more james mangold for you uh we would look at hell or high water uh which again yeah. really feels like this odd time warpy it is modern day but set in a place that has this kind of very strong attachment to a 
different time uh, and the way people have to survive uh, in that time frame. Uh, and then finally, uh, we would look at uh, Dale Lowry's The Old Man and the Gun mm-hmm. uh, and in there with uh, Redford and that sort of callback to uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which landed in the new Hollywood style of Western filmmaking and how that all ties together. So that's what I would do with this. Uh, just look at a lot of fun movies. Very cool, very cool. Okay, Dalton, what does your syllabus look like using Escape from New York? Well, I'm definitely on board with Arthur's uh, thesis that this movie is a a neo-Western or retrofitted Western of some kind. I concur. Yeah, but I I think it's also sort of the progenitor of a a whole type of different genre, a whole subgenre unto itself. And this is the the urban apocalypse movie or the urban dystopia uh, movie set in the city that... And I think this this subgenre definitely owes a lot to the Western, the idea of a lawless place. It's just... It uh, presupposes... We've gone back east. Exactly. The, the, the lawless places, the places we've been settled the longest. Yeah. And so I we'd look at some films like... Uh, uh, we just mentioned these uh, last week, I think. Uh, Purge Anarchy. Um, hmm. The second Purge movie, which I think... The first film is much more a home invasion film. The second Purge film's got a bigger budget, so they spend a lot of time out on the street getting to see what would it like to be out in the city on Purge night. Uh, and then we'd also look at the first Purge, which is much more grounded and, you know... The contemporary time period mm-hmm. and much more invested in a city that is already struggling and an urban area that's already struggling and how that gets uh, taken advantage of by the, the powers that be and the forces beyond uh, regular folks control uh, again both you know really interesting movies uh, very much uh, classic genre films both of them but with a lot of ideas and i think that's what you know makes them pair with uh, escape from new york so well and i think they both Oh, a huge debt to Escape from New York. I mean, the whole the whole Purge franchise does. Uh, definitely, the sort of the high concept genre movie uh, is, uh, you know, the sort of exactly what Escape from New York is uh, trafficking in. And so, I think those movies definitely share in that lineage. Uh, we'd also look at RoboCop and Dread, two different law enforcement centric stories about mega cities uh, that are uh, run sort of nefariously and uh, dystopically, and you know. If, of course, in the case of RoboCop, we've got the uh, police force that's owned by the corporations. And in Dread, we have sort of this fascistic uh, police state that is judge, jury, and executioner. And I think both of those have a lot of fun satire in them, and a lot of fun sort of cheeky jokes uh, that play with this premise really interestingly. Uh, I'd also wanted to take a look at Cloverfield, which is sort of a different, you know, again, it's a monster movie, but it's it's about the difficulty of navigating a city when things are not working the way they're supposed to, right? It's the, the city has uh, been upended in some way and has been turned into a, you know, an absolute uh, madhouse. Uh, so I think it's kind of an interesting place for us to look. Maybe uh, while we're looking at police state movies, we might check out uh, Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049, or at the very least pay lip service to the to the Blade Runner films. Uh, because I think they they are so, again, part of the lineage of Escape from New York. Uh, I think, you know, Escape from New York is kind of this this proto-cyberpunk movie. And mm-hmm. I think uh, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 owe a lot to, to that film. Uh, the, just this idea of a city gone wrong. Um, so again, not a city-sized prison uh, in the case of these films, but definitely a city that's full of commodification and, and you know, sort of aping on these same ideas. Uh, we'd also look at another Carpenter that I think pairs really well with this, They Live, because um, mm-hmm. I, I think they both share a lot as far as Carpenter at his most nihilistic about the state of the world, at Carpenter at his, his most kind of 
uh, frustrated and political. Um, I, I think they're, they're films that are in conversation with each other in a really interesting way. Uh, last but certainly not least, I'd want to take a look at the comic book, uh, DMZ. Uh, I know there's a mini series of this on HBO Max now that I haven't checked mm. out any of. Uh, but DMZ is a, uh, takes place in a, during a second American Civil War in the demilitarized zone of Manhattan, um, which is uh, just, again, a really cool book that I think owes a lot to Escape from New York. And uh, share, shares a lot of that sort of dropping you in and explaining the lore as it becomes relevant, not really getting too much into the politics right up front, uh, kind of letting the world wash over you as you, uh, you read it. Uh, I'm not sure how the show is. Uh, it kind of sat in development hell for a long time. They, people have been trying to adapt DMZ for many years. Is that but, Rosario Dawson? Yeah, okay. Rosario Dawson. And I forget, there's a couple of other names in it. I, I want to say, um, no, it's, I can't remember who else it is. Um, but I want to say Jimmy Smith, but I don't think that's right. But there, there's a, somebody of that that generation is is also in it. Benjamin Bratt. Benjamin Bratt. That's who it is. Yeah, I know. I know it wasn't quite right because um, Jimmy Smith has been too busy going back to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I like DMZ a lot. I, I think its world is interesting as far as you know the the idea of a a second civil war that does not have a traditional you know two. uh, nation states going against each other or a a splinter nation state going against its original half uh, but is more about insurgencies and uh, much more relevant to modern day concerns I I guess researched well researched as far as what modern civil conflicts look like Hmm. Uh, yeah I really like DMZ a lot and I I think it's uh, maybe the most interesting one as far as taking the idea of an entire the entirety of Manhattan having some some terrible fate and becoming something new that it's not been before. Um, yeah, I really like the books a lot. Dustin, how would you teach escape from New York? What do you, what do you think that this looks like on a syllabus? I don't know where it goes in a class. Uh, but I, what I thought about a lot was just how much Howard Hawks there is to, uh, John Carpenter. He loves it, he loves westerns. He, he loves westerns. He always wanted to and make one. Particularly loves Howard Hawks. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, a class maybe on auteurism. Mm-hmm. And my initial thought was there are a number of Howard Hawks films that have been remade uh, by uh, contemporary filmmakers. Scarface got remade by De Palma, and uh, this film. And then I was thinking about uh, the thing as a as a Hawks as well from Carpenter. And so some of those kinds of ideas, and I think what I might actually want to do with a class that might be interesting is to do a class in like auteurism revisited and think about uh, some of these filmmakers and the major influences they've had. Because I think De Palma does a Hawks, but he also does quite a bit of Hitchcock. And so using De Palma in that kind of way, using Carpenter for for Howard Hawks, thinking about how uh, Boonwell has a major influence on Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. and although del Toro hasn't remade any Boonwell films as of yet, and so looking at that sort of relationship to remakes, uh, and in fact, you know, an Ernst Lubitsch film got remade by Howard Hawks, and so there's a there's a couple sort of interesting ways to think about how auteurs cite other auteurs, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I don't know if that's a module within a, a, a more generic auteurism class. I don't know if I would want to do like a full out Howard Hawks class, although that could be fun. Uh, it seems more likely though that I would be doing a class on auteurism itself and thinking about the ways in which uh, referentiality mm. sort of plays into the way in which these auteurs define themselves uh, over and against other filmmakers. Another filmmaker I'd think about with this would be Shyamalan and Spielberg mm-hmm. and how they sort of ref- uh, there's a lot of references that go back and forth that way. And maybe 
some go in the other direction as well. Uh, and so that that was my thought is uh, think about those artistic touches and looking at more contemporary films uh, next to some of what was this sort of classic golden era Hollywood type stuff and how those things work. And then, of course, the last thing with Hawks is interesting is he remakes himself. Uh, we already mentioned Rio Bravo is basically remade in El Dorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, same star, same beats. A lot of it's identical. Yeah. And so... Thinking about self-referentiality, yeah. and of course, we've got an example with Hitchcock as well, with yeah. The Man Who Knew Too Much. Well, even Hanukkah with uh, Funny Games. Oh, Funny Games, right, yeah. yeah. And so That's interesting. Those ideas are sort of percolating Filmmakers in my head. Filmmakers influencing each other, and then also the ways they influence their own work later. Yeah, yeah the way early work influences later work. I think it's interesting. Auteurs aware of their auteurism yeah, in, sure. some, in some sense. So going into the well of classic auteurism, I think, would be fun with this. Uh, so with that... I believe it's now time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business. And Dustin, I think you've set us up very nicely for getting down to business with this auteur theory talk. Because let's let's talk about Johnny. John Carpenter is sort of the genre filmmaker of the second half of the 20th century. Um, You know, I think he's got the most clout. I think if you talk to film heads, he's the one that people are going to speak to. You know, again, obviously Spielberg is the captain of uh, dreams and America's granddad or whatever. But I think Carpenter is sort of got more genre respect. So uh, that begs the question is any John Carpenter movie a film you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course? You know, we we talked Assault on Precinct 13 10 years ago. We've talked other Carpenter films in the interim. We're talking Escape from New York today. But are all of these films essential American films now because of the status that Carpenter has as far as influencing the generation of filmmakers that came after him? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. And I, I do think Carpenter is really, really important and worth considering and definitely a, a filmmaker that you would want to make people aware of. But he, here's my question, I guess, that got, kind of ties into that. What do you select as the primary canon? I mean, that, you for know, Carpenter? for Carpenter in the same way, you know, Hitchcock is a major and influential filmmaker as well, but you wouldn't necessarily want to watch all the Hitchcock movies mm-hmm. uh, for it because there's just so many of them. And in the same kind of way, the output of uh, a John Carpenter is quite a bit uh, as well. I didn't realize he directed Starman as I'm looking at your list yeah. there. He's, uh, done, he's directed 18 feature films. Yeah, did We've a lot. covered seven of them. We've covered seven Carpenters? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, he's not 10 done years. as many as uh, the Hitchcock there. So no, who had almost 60. Yeah, there's right. a lot more there. Um, but, I, I mean, I think you would probably do Dark yeah. Star. Yeah, you have to do Halloween because of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you just have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm less interested in it, but like I even I have to acknowledge it. I, I agree, you have to look at the first movie, even if you don't really want to and i like the fog a lot too as sort of a more of a traditional gothic kind of ghost story. story yeah i mean i think you do escape from new york because that's his first major move into action sci-fi movie. i yeah. think and, you well ha- i guess into action yeah well and i think you have to do sci-fi. the thing because it's his first studio picture yeah and it's the thing and it's the thing right? right you could get away with not doing big trouble in little china you know it's it's got less cultural cachet even though it it definitely means a lot to a lot of people. And I think I really influ- like Big Trouble a well, lot. It's, so. I think it's had a lot of filmmaking influence. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's also influenced mm-hmm. video games like Escape from yeah. New York has. There's no Mortal Combat without Big Trouble in Little China. You know, I think there's a, a lot of influence on that. But I think, you know, it's it's another Western riff. It's another Kurt Russell team up. 
you know, I think you can get away with with skipping Big Trouble because I think you got to spend some time on either Prince of Darkness or, or Mouth of Madness, one of his other Apocalypse trilogy movies, because they're so idiosyncratic. They're so personal to him. Um, I don't know. They Live feels you essential, definitely, too. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's, that feels like top tier. Yeah. I think the rest you can probably, for you know, Memoirs of the Invisible Man is only really sort of an, a footnote for being a Chevy Chase vehicle. You know, I mean, there's some interesting stuff there, but it's not, you know, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., Vampires. These are all films you can live without, right? Like, he does sort of have an unfortunate latter half of his career with some interesting ideas and some fun stuff, but... Uh, just le- a less notable output. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think he is an important uh, voice in that whole, and again, name above the title. I mean, he's, he yeah. makes a big deal out of that anyway. Well, and he's, he, he is, I mean, if, when you talk about auteurs, he is one of those guys that is wearing a lot of hats because he is so invested in getting his vision on his screen. Right. And so, yeah, he's, he's producing, he's yeah. editing sometimes, he's, scoring. he's doing scoring. Yeah. So, and an excellent, excellent scoring. He's and, just, he's a good musician. Yeah, he's he really got a, a good brain for film scores. Yeah. Well, he did the score for uh, last year's Firestarter with Zac Efron. I forgot uh, about that. That's a really good score. Well, I know he's, him and his son wrote some new pieces for mm. the, um, the Halloween, uh, reboot trilogy or whatever you however we want to talk about it but the, the david gordon green halloween so mm-hmm. he, oh, okay yeah he rewrote some score with his son for those so he's still working as a composer right yeah so yeah i i think he is a major voice there and i, I and again the ways in which he is translating a tradition i i, I think one of the th- interesting things about carpenter is carpenter is not necessarily a brand spanking new, we never saw this coming kind of visionary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get that sometimes. And I, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Oh, you mentioned Shyamalan already. Shyamalan, He's yeah. sort of a kind of a came out of nowhere and blew yeah. everybody's hair back. Jordan Peele. You Jordan know, Peele kind of would be an example everybody. there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, Carpenter even, even is David Cronenberg is, is sure. sort of like you know this unique kind of way into body horror that that Cronenberg's early films mm-hmm. you know work in. When well, he's coming out of Canadian filmmaking, yeah, right. And, and Carpenter really does feel like someone who is part of a, a classic B picture kind of tradition, the Corman household of doing things. Well, and uh, you know, and um, and um, one of Corman's guys, P- uh, not Peter Jackson. Oh my God, um, James Cameron. Uh, did matte painting on Escape from New York. Oh, did he? Yeah. yeah. But I, there's some Corman lineage there, uh, which I think is interesting. And so what, what, what he feels like to me is a, one of those filmmakers who is a cinephile. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he feels like a mm-hmm. cinephile filmmaker, yeah. you know. Sure. Um, and there are other filmmakers who, they, they seem to love their stuff, but they don't seem to just love the movies. They don't seem to have the same kind of Marty's reverence. one of those guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Marty, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would be an example there with somebody who's that kind. QT, do you know, for all of his being annoying that he has, he's right. also one of those sort of like lo- just loves the pictures, right? Well, mentioned, I mean, Jordan Pill's another one, yeah. I mean, it's fun. Uh, he was on Smartless with uh, those was, uh, with Arnett and Bateman and oh, Sean yeah. Hayes, and uh, they are you know, asked, you know, who's your favorite, who are the directors you watched, or you know, what are the, the movies you watch? He's like, I don't know, Spielberg, you know, he's like, he's like, it's not some French, you, 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 it's. You know, it's Spielberg he's and Shyamalan, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I think he's very much one of those same guys. It's just, it's just watch the movies and love the movies, and right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so yeah, it's, it's it's a cinephile, but it's 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 a popcorn cinephilia mm-hmm. that 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 seems mm-hmm. to be the case with a guy like a, a Carpenter, and and then that's good. It works, and uh, he I get it, he's sort of playing that in those same kind of sandboxes there. So um, yeah, I I enjoy that about that, and I enjoy the idea of him 
translating different genres. Uh, and so we've already seen this with Rio Bravo or El Dorado being translated into Assault on Precinct 13 back in episode one ten years ago. Uh, now here we are at this episode, and he's translating, again, kind of... Um, a wronged man, man with no name. I mean, a very Clint Eastwood kind of character yeah. uh, showing up uh, to you know clean house and you know deal. With, I mean, well, and and the, the Clint Eastwood lineage is very much there because we have Lee Van Cleef from The Good, mm-hmm. the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, of course. as our heavy, yeah. who is kind of on our side but kind of not on our side. He's he's similarly a disillusioned vet, right? Yeah, like that's sort of the vibe that we get from him. And I guess there's more character building in the novelization and some early screenplay drafts you get a little bit more Lee Van Cleef. But I, I think that that's his character is, as Arthur said, an interesting foil to Kurt Russell, just because you, you can't tell how much Snake can trust him, which I think is <clears throat> really interesting. Right. And it turns out to be a pretty, you know, stand-up guy, but we really don't know, Yeah, you know, as, as the movie sort of progresses. But I, I really do enjoy that very much. Uh, what do we think about... This is something I kept thinking about quite a bit, and uh, Demolition Man came to mind as well, uh, and, okay. and some of these other movies in which the dates are so close uh, to With the near the, future to, is the, like the near future, not that far away, not that far away. And then as that movie now is forty years old, uh, the near future is well into our past. Mm-hmm. The nineteen ninety nine of Wesley Snipes, Los Angeles. You know, uh, which is not quite the same, you know, as what ended up happening. And the uh, 1997 of this world of this does does I'm, I'm thinking about cinema preservation or screening or its longevity, its shelf life. And uh, the, the question of will younger film watchers be able to get over the hump? I think it makes it more interesting. Does it? I think it really does. Yeah, I, I think any time a film gets past its then future I think it makes, I mean, same with Johnny Mnemonic a couple of years ago. I think all of the things that happened in 2020 make Johnny Mnemonic more interesting by extension. And I, I think that goes for this film as well. I think it's politics get more interesting every day just because of like what sort of a world Carpenter is envisioning um, and how those things do and didn't, did and did not happen. Right. I, I think all of, all of that just uh, rich enriches the text for me. Uh, and I, I would like to hope that that is what future generations of, of filmgoers and, and cinephiles will take from this. Um, oh, go ahead. Well, I, just, I would hate to see that we have to require all of our movies to be a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or yeah. the Dune time scale where it's... 10,000 years Yeah, 10,000 yeah. years in the future, and that way it's just so far removed that we don't have any idea, but... Um, it is a thing that I wonder about. Will people be watching The Expanse in, you know, 100 years mm. and saying, well, no. nope. We won't be here in 100 years. (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't think we'll have streaming services in 100 years. That's probably fair. (laughs) If we are here, it'll probably be a a less uh, content-consuming, focused uh, civilization. But hypothetically. Hypothetically. If they are watching The Expanse in 100 years, what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, how do they feel about the, you know, not that... And I think that that's sort of what makes The Expanse interesting, right? Just to take a brief tangent. It's it's sort of set in a medium near future. Mm -hmm. It's a little... It's a few decades, a few centuries out. uh, So far enough that we really can kind of think about what if, uh, but close enough that we definitely recognize everything as being very human. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I I think... uh, That's a much different one, just because it's a few hundred years removed. Anytime, like... Everybody who was in the thing is going to live to see that day, I think is that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, What do we think of Carpenter's politics here and in general? I mean, 
uh, he, he is a, a very cynical filmmaker as far as his, his view of America, uh, which is, I, I think, part of why I appreciate him so much. Uh, but, you know, this is definitely coming out of, you know, he writes this screenplay originally uh, coming out of Watergate in the Nixon era teams up with Nick Castle to kind of punch it up, make it a little bit funnier, make it work a little bit more for general audiences. Uh, what, what do we think of this film? I know it's pretty vague in its politics. That, that's what I was going to say is I don't quite know. I mean, I understand that there is this sort of radical sort of, you know, SDS on steroids kind of thing, you know, that has taken over Air Force One and crashed the plane. But that's all they do. The, yeah, that uh, faction never shows back up, really. We, yeah, they, they're never a part of anything else that goes on. And what... President Pleasance has done at this point is negotiate a nuclear peace with Russia and China based on some uh, fusion technology. Some new fusion technology. So in the shared uh, fusion technology. Here's right. a fun thing, though. In the novelization, it's made clear that his uh, intentions are not benign. Like oh, it's, okay. It's the, they've created a new type of fusion, but it's a type of fusion that will allow for cleaner nuclear bombs, basically. Oh. It'll allow for nuclear weapons without fallout. And that that's sort of a, an aspect of the novelization that makes Pleasance even more overtly nefarious. Well, that, that's what... I mean, but without that, in the film that I saw... I'm like, okay, so that's kind of, I mean, you know, uh, uh, we'll, we'll broker a nuclear peace based on clean yeah. nuclear energy. Fine. Good. Pliskin is like, you're a douche. So I'm not going to let it happen. So I'm not going to let that happen. I'm like, I would go, yes, this guy sucks. I don't like him very much either, but does he have to not suck for us to want not nuclear war? Mm-hmm. It, and so the, the politics of the movie seems to be just sort of contrarian. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. cynical, but it's, it's more just, you know, I will not play your game. If that's what you want, I want to do the opposite. It, it, it's sort of like this is internalized sort of rebelliousness. Deeply anti-authoritarian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and which is which is fine and an okay politics, but it is, in that sense, uh, incoherent. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't make sense that you're like, okay, so I will deny you this and uh, likely nuclear winter will now strike North Dakota or whatever. Uh, that, that, that seems to be less logically you know coherent with snake bliskin but i think it wouldn't i think the movie would suffer if snake had overt politics right i think i think the movie works better that he is just sort of an agent of his own uh volition right that's that's sort of what he is about he can still be a good guy you know i think the movie works less well if he's a good guy i Uh, think the movie requires him to kind of be a not a schmuck but an anti-hero for sure uh, do, do you think he's a good guy? Well, I, I, I guess if the MacGuffin was a thing that was going to make the president wealthy, mm-hmm. then that was it. Mm-hmm. Then he says, oh, I will let you have this because I don't care. But now you're kind of a punk and people died. You don't seem to care. So I will deny you that. That that seems to be petty enough to not be like full out good guy stuff. But but when it's like what we have at stake here is this guy sucks and he is going and he is vying for world peace, you know, like a nuclear armistice. And he's like, yeah, I don't like you. So, you know, bones to 30 yeah. million Americans and Chinese and Russians. That seems to be a bit much. There's a very telling moment, I think, when he does go into the underground for the first time at the theater. The the burlesque show? Or? Yeah. And yeah. he goes down and sees what appears to be a sexual assault happening. And he just kind of walks on by. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel, oh, I feel that like part. that's yeah. a very telling yeah, moment I, about I, what his character is. We were yeah. going to get there, too. Because yeah. there's a more classical script where he walks over and stops that. Yeah. But he just lets it slide. And I think that kind of speaks to him. And I, I think, you know, if he doesn't have bombs in his head, uh, if he, he fails to try to get the president, you know, at that first kind of moment where it falls apart, he's probably just going to be like, ah, eh, whatever. 
you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I don't think he, I don't know. You know, I think that's the thing. He's, he seems fairly selfish. And, well, I saw in an interview, Kurt Russell talking about, uh, him and him and John Carpenter are both of the opinion, according to Kurt, that some men are in fact, yeah. Island. did you yeah. see this one? Yeah, yeah. That's in the feature. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I think we watched the same thing. Yeah, then. probably. Um, but yeah, it's this sort of this idea that no, some people are an Island under themselves and snake is one of those people. Yeah. It's sort of Kurt and John's philosophy of the character, yeah. which I think is, I mean, that, that's the, the fine. Film, I guess. Yeah, I think the film definitely shows us that kind of person for sure. I, I think the movie is, less successful with a a, a more heroic character. Yeah, well, and again, I don't think that's a necessarily a problem mm-hmm. there in terms of the character, but in terms of the any politics. sort of politics of the yeah. film, it makes it sort of incoherent there. I think that's fair. You yeah, know. it is sort of hard to get a handle on it. Because it seems like, I think the emphasis was more on just how anti-authoritarian can we make this character yeah. mm-hmm. and throw him into this world, and I think everything else is kind of playing second fiddle to that. Mm-hmm. And again, sort of acting against his own self-interest at this point, even though because he just he feels a spiteful moment. So he's going to be spiteful. And so he is sort of like a a raving id in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think that Dustin were to kind of take a step backwards to something you were talking about a bit ago. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting when the movie's sort of setting itself up that we get the title card of 1997 now. And then the 97 fades out before the now fades out. So now is the last word on screen. Uh, and there is sort of, I, I don't know, from a, a an art theory standpoint, I think there's something interesting there, right? Like all movies are about the moment they're made and the moment they're watched, mm-hmm. right? They're always about now. Whatever, whether the now was then or the now is now, they're, right. they're always sort of about but their it's time. About, it's about 1981 and it's about 2022, yeah, is what you're exactly, saying. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's, I don't know if there's... You know, any any fun film theory uh, jargon we can throw out about this, but I, I think there is something interesting uh, about this idea, right? That uh, I, I don't know. I, I just thought there there is sort of a bending of reality that happens around the now being the last word on screen that I think is very cool. I, I don't know that we have anything to say about it, but I just thought it was awesome. Well, I, and I, I do think that the movie is able to... We, we talked a little bit about how the 97 future is maybe a little too close or a little too far and, you know, those kind of questions, but I do think the what the, the movie itself, the concepts of the movie, feel like it's not a far cry from where we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was the idea that Carpenter was trying to get across in 1981. Like, any day now, we could put together this kind of Alcatraz on Manhattan Island. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2022, and I'm like, you know what? I could see somebody come up with that plan in 10 years. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it wouldn't happen tomorrow, but I, I could see somebody doing something like this. I think it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's all. Well, I was just going to say, I think it also speaks to, uh, particularly the state of Manhattan in the late 70s, early 80s, which was not the kind of flourishing tourist town it has become. Sure. Yeah. It was much more crime was higher and things like that. Well, and the pop culture of the day is, is even in saying it even louder than it is probably actually true, right? Death yeah. wish, taxi driver, all, yeah. all of these things sort of, uh, dirty, grimy New York speaking and, to get yeah, urban decay yeah. in New York city. Um, yeah. Uh, there's some weird stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's brain, Calling uh, some of the uh, uh, attackers Redskins. Yeah, yeah, there is that line. As the moment that the movie is being a Western, that's for sure, and not in a fun way. No. Um, calls them savages. Yeah, yeah. just sort of weird holdovers from John Carpenter being a kid who grew up on 50s Westerns, uh, I think. 
It's, there's no there's no real there there other than it sucks and it's yeah gross. I, 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 the same thing with the uh, the chandeliers thing I mean I, I, I mentioned them that's because, interesting you you that's that's what you feel like they're doing I, I well I I think it's a, it's sort of like this is sort of like an exploitation film this mm-hmm. feels like you know across 110th Street kind of superfly kind of in, in some of that you know playing in some of those pools as well uh, with the film and so of course you know. Um, I, I think it's not racist in the in the sense of it's it's making fun of or belittling or whatever, but it's this idea that this character played by Isaac Hayes mm-hmm. is black, and we're not going to just let him be black without him sort of performing some sort of form of contemporary blackness. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, this is this is an extravagance that would you know resonate that befits the Duke of New York. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and and so it, it feels like it's sort of playing in that kind of black exploitation. Gotcha. Uh, sort, okay. Sort of reflective of the black exploitation imagery of the time. Correct. Yeah. 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 Isaac Hayes is so good in this movie. He's he fun. He's doing a little twitch, which rules. Uh, big fan of that. I, I just love everything about what yeah. he's doing, and I love the. I don't know that the movie sort of doubles down on uh, the National Liberation Front of America or whatever it is, calling it a racist police state when the president of New York shoots the emissary of his prison island. Mm-hmm. He, There is a duke, there is a, a ruling, uh, you know, there's a politics to Manhattan Island prison, and uh, the president of the United States answers with gunfire. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is sort of fitting. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's that's all there in the text. It doesn't have anything uh, anything else to say other than that. Right. Really. Well, and I think this does sort of speak to some of the actual more coherent politics of this, because it, the the prison and carceral state, mm-hmm. this idea that it is simply warehousing of criminals. And if we increase incarceration mm-hmm. rates and increase general criminality, really, we just have to come up with bigger and bigger places to go ahead and warehouse with worse and worse conditions yeah. uh, for those inmates. And so it does sort of anticipate those kinds of things. It does uh, not anticipate the prison industrial complex and uh, the sort of private prisons and, right and now the, the profiteering on prisons yeah it sort of doesn't see that coming because how could you how could you see something that evil coming <laughs> yeah no one expects the spanish inquisition that's very true um there is uh deborah hill said something interesting arthur and i'm sure you saw this as well she said that snake represents the other side of america the unpatriotic mm-hmm. patriotic side of america who we want to be but are afraid to be, which I think is kind of an interesting, interesting. thing. I think I like Deborah Hill a lot. I, I think yeah. she's always got interesting things to yeah. say about the movie she made with Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting producer. Uh, but I think that that's kind of a fun take on Snake, is the idea that he is patriotic by virtue of hating the system as it exists, which I think is is pretty cool. I don't know. Yep, it works. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a there there for sure. Um, there, there definitely is an American love of outlaws that this and i think you're right to bring up the old man and the gun with your syllabus yeah. arthur as far as that that romanticization romanticization of the outlaw of the criminal who uh, has a code or has some sort of um i don't know and that's the thing that's so interesting about snake is he's not a character with a code if snake has a code we don't really get any sense of what it is yeah uh we just get a sense that he's a survivor uh, so I think that's what sort of makes him interesting as one of the most outlaw outlaws that we've ever had as a as a hero on on screen and in a genre picture. He is definitely not a good guy, uh, and I, I think that's you know there's n- most movies that have an antihero definitely spend a lot of time making that antihero become more conventionally heroic by the end of the film, and we don't really get that here. No, uh, which I think is pretty essential to the film working. I, I think that that's a big part of of what has made it stand out uh, for the last 40 years. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's go ahead and get to a point where we can render a verdict on the escape from New York. Uh, will we escape or will we stay there forever? I ask you first, Dalton, shelf for uh, trash for the escape of New York. Staying here as long as I possibly can. Yeah, I again, I don't, this movie does not connect with me as much as some other Carpenters. Uh, I, I definitely could agree with the sentiment that it's mid-tier Carpenter, but mid-tier Carpenter is just better than what most people are making. Uh, so it's sh- very shelfable for me. Very good, very good. What do you say, Arthur? I will. It is on the shelf, so I will say very gently to put it on the shelf. All right, very good. I would also probably shelf it, um, but I would shelf Big Trouble in Little China before this one, but I like Big Trouble in Little China a lot. Um, but, sure. So just to defend my favorite sort of mid-tier Carpenter. Uh, but yeah, I, I, because Carpenter is so unique of a voice and is so interesting, and in that sense, if you're going to have a pretty complete or partially complete Carpenter Library, I think this is one of the movies that need to be part of that. So I would shelf it as well, although there are a number of titles I would get before this one. Um, the closest one being, or the furthest down the list, being close to this being Big Trouble. Sure. So, what's your, what's your car? I mean, mine's obviously the thing. That's it's Halloween. One. It's Halloween. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That I makes would, sense. Yeah, I would that makes ha- sense for all three of us. Yeah. We, we all have very specific Carpenters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay, I was just curious. All right, well, there you go. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, Dalton will tell you how. That's right. If you want to tell us your favorite Carpenter, you can find us on Twitter, at Good Trash Media. Uh, you know, DMs are open or whatever. Uh, but if you want to send us a long-form feedback, you can email the show, GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. It's the name of the show you're listening to, at gmail.com. Uh, give us your Carpenter power rankings. Let's see what that's about. Uh, last but certainly not least, if you want to help keep the lights on, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and uh, throw, throw some dollars our way and maybe we'll send you a John Carpenter film if uh, it could if the Arthur Tron 9000 deems it necessary based on your survey that you submit to us. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, it is. <laughs> <laughs> for, for the Chevy Chase and John Carpenter lover. You know there's one. Uh, Someone that's there. That yeah. is their carpenter. If it works for that's somebody. somebody's carpenter. You know it. Uh, Arthur, uh, what are we going to talk about next week as we continue this celebration of 10 years? Well, you know, it's been 10 years ago, uh, the old man here had an idea to bring us together uh, uh, to avenge uh, genre filmmaking. Um, that's a, that was a poor red herring. Um, uh, so uh, next week, though, uh, since this is all his fault, I thought we would watch a movie in honor of Pops himself. Okay. So next week, we are going to talk about a movie that actually probably will be in a film studies course. In fact, I think it is in a film studies course next week. Interesting. Because the next week, we're putting the weight of the world on our shoulders as we watch Oh Hazard, Balthazar. Oh Hazard, all right. Oh, so yes. the, yeah, this is definitely a tribute to Dustin. Okay. Great stuff. We're all gonna, right. The donkey that could. The donkey that could. This is not genre filmmaking, that is for sure. So very fun. I love it. A little step outside of the usual groove for our anniversary, because that is, I think, very true to the show. We like to step outside of genre yeah. filmmaking pretty often, you know, just to break things up a little bit and it's one of my favorite movies ever so wow all right well thank you for that arthur and uh, that sounds like a good time so you keep watching we'll keep talking the donkey won't and we'll see you all next time <laughs>